All right. Well, thank you for worshiping together this morning. As always, it is a joy to be able to do so. And I love the way that we are pressing into this theme of God's honor, His glory, His greatness here this morning. And uh, I hope that already you have received a great deal of encouragement and, uh, and of hope in the midst of whatever you're going through in life in this season. Um, I do want to note that uh, this morning's sermon is one of those ones where we're going to cover a lot of territory, <laughs> but hopefully it's all helpful. So, brace yourselves. We have been working our way through the book of First Peter, and after a, a brief pause for a series around Easter time, uh, we've returned to the book, and we've been focusing on the fact that Peter is writing to an audience that is dealing with a culture that largely was hostile to the Christian faith early on in its history. Peter himself was really the foremost of Jesus' disciples. He went from being a fisherman to being the first person who confessed Jesus as the Messiah. And then when he denied Jesus, he experienced his forgiveness and went on to become one of the main leaders of the early church in Jerusalem. And then when persecution of Christians broke out in Jerusalem, he and the other apostles remained, but many less prominent Christians were forced out of the city. And so the book of 1 Peter is a letter written by Peter to try and encourage them in the midst of that circumstance as they are scattered throughout the region and trying to live out their faith uh, in the midst of some of the challenges that they face. And thus far, he has reminded them of the gospel, that the creator God whom we rebelled against has reconciled us to himself in Jesus Christ, and he has called us to bless the world as his representatives. Verse 3, verse 10 says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. And so this is really Peter's focus thus far in the book, is calling his, his followers to, to pay attention to the gospel, to what God has done in the world, and then to live out a life of blessing to those around them as a response to that. And last week, I thought Daryl summed up well what this looks like practically, which is to speak and to act in a way that reflects the fact that God is attentive to everything that we do. And this was really the theme of last week was that God's eyes are on us and we want to honor him and please him in everything that we do. And so building on this, this week's passage uh, considers how the people around us may react to that kind of lifestyle. And that's really the question that Peter turns his attention to here is, if you live this way, if you live life in a way that reflects the fact that God is watching you, then how will people around us respond? And in turn, how are we to respond to that? And so we're looking at 1 Peter 3, 13 to 17, and how Peter takes apart that theme here in this passage. <clears throat> now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. With this passage in mind, I would like to consider four questions here this morning that I think help us to apply Peter's teaching in this context. 
First of all, I want to understand how did Peter expect people to react to Christians? Then I want to ask how did people how did Peter expect Christians to respond in turn? Then I want to consider how our culture reacts to Christians. And then I want to talk about how we should respond in turn in our context. And what I want to put forward today as the big idea is that we can expect to face both hostility and respect from the people around us, and a firm, gracious response can discredit the hostility and earn more respect. Okay? That's what I want to put forward. We can expect to face both hostility and respect, and a firm, gentle response can discredit the hostility and can earn more respect on the part of the people around us. So, first of all, I want to consider this question of how did Peter expect people to react to Christians? And, and again, the idea is that I think he expected them to respond with both hostility and respect. First and foremost, he expects hostility. And you see this expectation throughout the whole passage. In fact, really, a whole theme throughout the book is that Christians will suffer for righteousness' sake, as he says right here at the beginning of the passage. And this is a theme that really echoes Jesus' own teaching as well. He talks about what to do when we suffer for righteousness' sake and the fact that God blesses those who do. Now, I think it's worth asking, why is this? Why do Jesus and Peter and the other apostles expect that Christians will suffer because of their righteousness? And I think it really goes back to the biblical theme of idolatry. The biblical understanding is that all of us have failed to worship God properly. And, and in place, we put other things, other values, other gods, other ways of life that we worship, we submit ourselves to instead. And because of that, our lives become distorted. And Christianity, at its core, is really about denouncing those false gods. It's about saying we don't live by those values, we don't worship these things, instead we worship the true God, the true creator, and his way of life is how we want to live. And by nature, denouncing idols is controversial because of the fact that it goes against the very value systems of the people around us. And people will defend the things that they worship, whether it's Old Testament gods like Baal or whether it's new gods like consumerism. People will contend for those things. Now, I think it's important to note that Peter's argument here assumes that the Christian in question is really living righteously. I don't think he intends to diminish the fact that sometimes we face hostility because we don't live as we ought. That sometimes our sin will discredit us and people will respond by slandering us. But Peter is also really trying to emphasize that sometimes that is not the case. We will live rightly. We will discern what God's will is for our lives. We will actually properly challenge the value systems of our day and live differently and that will lead to hostility. Peter expects that Christians will face hostility for their righteousness from those outside of the faith. But I think it's also really important to note that he doesn't seem to expect everybody to react that way. He also seems to expect that there are people watching with at least some measure of respect 
and that our response can strengthen that respect. And we see that in the fact that he claims that if Christians respond the right way to the hostility, then they will be put to shame. Right? There's this understanding that if we respond the right way to the hostility, then, then the hostility itself will be discredited in the eyes of the people around us. In other words, some people are looking on, waiting to see what our response is before they form a conclusion about us and about our faith, and they maybe even have some measure of respect there that can be fanned into flames. And this too makes sense when we look at the biblical themes and how it understands human nature. The Bible does understand that we are all created by God, that we are all made in his image, and that we all bear some element of that still to this day. And because of that, even though we have lost sight of God and even though we have given into false worship, there is a part of us that really does recognize good and evil for what it is. Right? And so because of that, he expects that there is, there is some around us, maybe many people around us, tapping into some of Jesus' themes about the fields being right, white for the harvest, right? That, that are actually looking for the good. And that when they see it lived out in the lives of Christians, then they will recognize the hostility as false and will respect all the more Christians and what they stand for. So I think we see here that Peter expects that both of these responses are going to be part of our experience. That, that his original audience, he, he expects as they're scattered throughout the region that they will be living life before God, and that for some people, those who are deeply invested in the false values of their day will respond with hostility and try and strike out at the Christians. And that has happened over and over again by the time Peter writes this letter. But at the same time, he expects that there are many people who are waiting for God to move in their communities, and when they see the Christians responding properly, then they will actually cultivate a respect everywhere that they go. So then what is the right response? What is it that Peter calls his people to in the midst of that hostility and respect environment? And the answer is, I think, that he expected them to give a firm but gracious response in order to discredit the hostility and, and reinforce the respect. And we see this in the middle part of this passage the, the, the end of 14 up to 16, where he says, Have no fear of them, that is, the people who are hostile towards you, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Now, now, as we unpack those verses, I think it's important to note that when he starts by saying, have no fear of them, I don't believe that he's talking about what I would call anxiety. Right? It is, of course, always nerve-wracking. It is emotionally distressing when people confront you about your faith when they are hostile towards you, especially if you feel like that hostility is unfair. I have tried to live well, I have tried to love you, I have tried to be a good person, and now you're attacking me? Of course there's some measure of anxiety, of nerves, of discomfort in that situation. 
But Peter really wants his audience to know you shouldn't let that dictate how you act in that circumstance. You should resist the urge to act reflexively on those things, and instead you should respond differently than the fear naturally leads you to. And that's because we recognize that Jesus the Messiah is Lord over all. He says, honor Christ as holy. Right? He's saying, you need to recognize Jesus, the one who you worship, is totally set apart. That he is greater than everything that you face. That his will and his way really is the best thing. And that if you follow that, then ultimately only good will come to you. That he will bless you even if you suffer for righteousness' sake. So he says by focusing on Jesus' holiness, on his greatness, on the fact that he truly is set apart, by recognizing that it is his opinion that matters more than anyone else's, then we will be able to answer properly instead of giving in to that fear of what people around us might do when they react with hostility. It goes back to what Daryl said last week about knowing God is attentive to everything that we do and that it's his eyes, it's his pleasure that matters most. And so then he says, within that, as you honor Christ as holy, you, you refuse to give in to the fear of what the hostility might lead to in your own life, then you need to be ready to make a defense. You need to be ready to stand up and say, no, I do stand by my decisions in this circumstance. Now, this, this verse is often used within modern apologetics to kind of talk about the idea of being able to give an intellectual defense of our faith. And, and I work with university students, and I love apologetics. <laughs> and there are some here in the church who I know feel the same way, and I've had some really great conversations with them about the intellectual side of Christianity. So I think it's good to be able to understand the logic of Christianity, the philosophy of Christianity, and how it compares to the philosophy of the world. But I don't really think that's the heart of what's being talked about here. That's maybe one form of what Peter's talking about. All he's really talking about in this case is being willing to stand up for an answer to why we made the decisions that we made that are now getting us hostile treatment. That when somebody says, why on earth would you say no to doing this and face the scorn of all around you? Why, why on earth would you choose to act this way and then get rejected or even hurt by the people in your lives, then you're able to say, it's because of the hope that I have in Jesus Christ. And that you can actually give an accounting for why you made the decisions that you made in that moment. So we see a firmness to this. It's, it's a sense of conviction. We need to be able to say, I, I am making careful decisions about how to follow God, and I stand by them in this moment. But the flip side of this is that we see, he says, but you got to do it with gentleness and respect. All throughout the New Testament, the apostles say there is no room for contentiousness in the Christian life. That our, our task is not to get all up in somebody's grill and say, you don't understand me and you'll never understand me and I, I don't have any respect for you whatsoever. I'm, I'm better than you. I know what's right. Leave me alone, okay? That, that response isn't honoring to Christ. Instead, there should be a humility of acknowledging this is something that's a gift to me. 
and a gentleness towards those around us, recognizing if you don't see, if you don't understand, then there's grace for that too. Our, our gracious response should be reflective of God's gracious response to us as those who don't deserve his affection. We don't deserve the life that he's given. And in that, we reflect his very character. We actually demonstrate what God's nature is like and the fact that we really do worship him and that this is what life looks like when we worship him. It's not an angry life. It's not a contentious life. It's not a life that's always full of strife. It's a life that can even face enemies with love. That's at the heart of what it looks like to be a Christian. So, so again, when we ask this question, okay, Peter expects that Christians will face hostility and respect from the people around them. <clears throat> then how does he expect Christians to respond to that? Well, the answer is that he expected Christians to give a firm, gracious response to discredit the hostility, to show that they have no real good grounds for it, and to earn more respect from those who are watching in that moment. And I think it's important to note, this worked. Sometimes we forget this. It, it, sometimes we go, well, that sounds nice in theory, but can it actually accomplish what we're intending to do? Can it actually win people over to Christ? Is it really possible to get the respect of the people around us? And the answer is yes. And we know this because people following Peter's advice and the advice of the other apostles and ultimately people following Jesus' way of life ultimately went from being a persecuted minority within their culture to it becoming the state religion. And when you look at history, there's kind of a mixed response to how well that experiment went of making Christianity the state religion, right? But the truth is that enough people were won over by the actions of Christians that they became the majority within the Roman Empire. And even the leaders began to realize this is better than what we have. So, so I think that if we respond the way Peter's talking to here, it does, over time, actually impact the very culture around us. Certainly that's what the historical record shows. If we respond to God as the audience of one and perform everything that we do with his happiness in mind, it can actually transform the people around us. And this is what I want to keep in mind as we move to our cultural context. Because we do need to ask, how is it that our culture reacts to Christians today? Do we see something similar to what goes on in Peter's day? And I think the answer is yes. <clears throat> I think we still see this mixture of hostility and respect from the culture around us. Now, I think it's important to note that to some degree, the hostility is merited. And that's because of the fact that Christianity has unfortunately often played a role in propping up evils in recent history. Although many individual Christians and many parts of the church resisted, good portions of the, world, the church did support European countries going all over the world and conquering people and, and making them subjugated sometimes in the name of Jesus Christ. This, in turn, led to Christian empires that ended up fighting in some of the bloodiest wars that we've ever had. And even today, I think if we're honest, 
Sometimes we don't really recognize how much privilege we have. And, and sometimes our faith is more about getting something that benefits us, a nice feeling, a nice community, you know, some, some, some things that appeal to our senses. And, and a lot of the time, our attempts to bring other people into the faith really are just about propping up the things that we value rather than really challenging the things of our day, the values that go against God. And in many ways, this, this stuff is almost the exact opposite of what Peter was seeing among his followers back 2,000 years ago. They were the minority. They were oppressed. He was telling them to respond to that oppression with love and grace. And unfortunately, throughout history, Christians have often been the oppressors. That being said, I don't think that all of the hostility that we face is just because of that. And even in that, even among those who respond to the history, I think their response contains an element of the idolatry that we talked about. You see, rather than recognizing that all of that stuff was out of step with Christ, rather than recognizing that Jesus didn't come to form empires, he came to form a different kind of kingdom, and, and trying to call the culture back to that, our once Christian culture has abandoned the faith entirely. It has said this, this Christianity is the problem, that religion and faith are the problem. And in many ways, our culture has actually made its greatest hope the elimination of faith and religion in the public square. We see that really the mindset of most of our leaders and most of our academics today is really to attempt to say faith is all well and good as long as it's just a private thing. Keep it inside of yourself. Don't let it affect the way that you interact with others. And definitely don't try and win other people over to that and tell them that they're wrong for the way that they're living. And that really is our culture's faith system. It's just keep whatever you believe about spirituality and religion to yourself and we'll all be okay. This is sometimes called secularism. And it really is entrenched in the way that our culture functions. But unfortunately, Christians cannot abide by this. There is a lot of internal debate among Christians about exactly what God's life looks like. But every Christian, even the most progressive, even the ones we call the liberals, they actually agree that we want to get people to live by God's standards. That is actually part of Christianity. We want the world to reflect God's standards. We have to try and people, win people over to it. We have to try and win the culture to some degree because we believe that a good culture is a culture that lives by God's standards. And so when our culture says, just stuff your faith into a closet, we just can't abide by that. We have to resist. We have to say, no, I will live out my faith in the public square. I will try and live it out in a way that other people pay attention to. I will try and call people to watch and to emulate what I'm doing. I will actually ask them to consider Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And this ruffles feathers. It does. People feel threatened by this because it, it challenges the notion that faith is best when it's just tucked away in a corner. And especially among those who are deeply invested in keeping Christianity out of the public square, this garners a hostile response. 
And we do see it in our institutions, and we do see it in our media, that people don't like it when Christians speak out. But at the same time, even as we face hostility in our culture, I think it's clear when you look closer and you look at the society at large, many people do not buy into that secular myth. Many people actually are thirsty for spirituality. And it's really interesting because statistically, even as atheism is growing, so too is really vibrant faith. All of the studies show that what's growing is is really committed atheism or really committed Christianity or really committed other faiths. What's giving way are the people who are kind of halfway in and halfway out. That's actually losing ground over time, and it's the committed versions of faith that are growing throughout the world. Now, don't get me wrong. Much of the spirituality that people around us pursue is unhealthy. But I think the key is it shows that people are thirsty for something. They know that just getting rid of faith, stuffing it into a corner, not letting it shape how we live, that doesn't work. They know that we have to have some sort of faith commitment that shapes the way that we live our lives. And so people are thirsty for that and looking for places to find it. And I think if you look beyond that really loud group of voices that really doesn't like Christianity and the way it lives its life, that often does show up in the media and the institutions, I think if you look beyond that, you do see that there are many people who actually have a higher level of respect for Christianity. Sometimes you have to move past the media into looking at individual people you're in relationships with. Sometimes you have to actually take away the news stories that talk about Christianity in general and just look at how people respond when one community does something really amazing or, or one individual really lives by their faith. But, but I think if you look, you actually begin to see that we really still do celebrate people who live by the fruit of the Spirit. We like it in our culture when people are loving, when they're gentle, when they're faithful, when they're patient, when they're kind, right? Not always all of those at the same time, Sometimes some of those things challenge the norms. But I think within our broader culture, there is still a thirst for that kind of religion that leads people to live life the way God originally intended. We respect that. And so I think, I think that like in Peter's day, in our culture, we can expect that people will react to real Christian righteousness with both hostility, but also with respect. So then the question becomes, how do we respond? And I think, maybe even more than in Peter's day, I think we really do need to embrace that call to give a firm, gracious response. That we need to, we need to aim to discredit the hostility by not responding out of fear with anger and evil for evil. But we need to really be firm and gracious. And I think that will discredit the hostility and it will earn us more respect over time. And I think, I think we need to contrast this with our other tendencies to kind of hide in a Christian bubble, to say, okay, you don't want us here, fine, we'll just go do all of our own things and, and, and leave you alone to your own thing. And it also contrasts with the tendency to say we need to go back to the way things were, where we used politics to win people over, 
which is often the mindset among especially American Christians, I find. There's kind of this tendency to say, we just need to use the institutions to, to force people to live by our standards. I don't think either of those responses, bubbling or, or trying to wield political power, are really going to win the culture. I think it's only going to be as we respond to hostility with graciousness, without giving in to what they say we should be doing. That, I think, will discredit the hostility and earn us more respect. Now, I think it's really important to note, this is difficult. And it's difficult because of how much confusion there is around Christianity in our culture. The word Christian is used in so many different ways, both in the historic sense as well as in what it means to be a Christian today. I think a lot of people just don't know what to think of Christians. And so they do just respond based on their media impressions. Often those loudest, hostile voices have painted people's idea of Christianity to the point that we almost expect, even among those who are open, there's often a gut-level hostility that comes out. And so I think we need, to, we need to be very patient with people. I think, I think in some sense, we need, to, we need to remember that the media isn't really everything. Sometimes we just need to step away from all of those things, you know, I hate how the government is trying to get rid of this funding. Or, or I hate how there's this story where people are being told they can't live by their faith values. And often we base our reactions on that and we spend a lot of time and energy focusing on those things. I think often we need to kind of step back away from those things and just say, how am I living in step with the people around me? Those who aren't in the church, those who don't know Christ, how are they responding to me? Am I facing hostility? If so, how can I respond with graciousness? Are they demonstrating some level of respect? Okay, how can I cultivate that in my relationships with them? Pay more attention to the people in your life than the ones that you see on TV or on the internet, on social media. I think spending a lot of emotional energy on those things really drains us from being able to focus on the things that matter more. And alongside that, I think we need to accept the confusion and master the basics. Accept that people will be confused about what Christianity is. They will, they will tend to caricature us. They will tend to see things that aren't really there in our lives. And we just need to accept that. We need to, again, respond graciously and patiently with people. And what we need to do is go back to the basics of living out our faith properly, really trying to live the kind of lives God wants us to live, and be ready to just share why we made those decisions. Always be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is in you. But again, the big picture, how should we respond to our culture's hostility and respect? I think the answer is we need to respond with gentleness and firm responses that will ultimately discredit those who attack us and cultivate the respect that is lingering there in people's lives. For me, I've had a lot of opportunities to practice this in the context of a very secular environment. I work with students at Trent University. I was a Trent student myself and volunteered with the Christian ministry there and continue now to serve in a staff capacity with a campus ministry. And in that place, we see these things. I have faced hostility from people who don't like what Christianity has to say. And I have also seen how when I respond to that with gentleness then it often discredits that and people begin to say, wait a minute, I want to take a second look. There's something here that's actually compelling and respectful. 
One of the best examples I can think of that is a classmate that I knew in fourth year. And I was in a class about Middle Eastern politics, and in it we got into all sorts of discussions about how Christianity and culture fit together and how religion and culture fit together, because in the Middle East, those two things are much more intertwined than they are here. And out of that, there was this one classmate who, who really was suspicious of Christians. And pretty much every class, she would start asking me questions about, well, how is it that you see this? And how is it that you see that? And Christianity's bad, isn't it? And I would always listen carefully. And I would always respond very gently. And often I would acknowledge, you know what? I don't have all of the answers to those things. But as a Christian, here's kind of how I begin to think those things through. Right? And over time, you could see she... She really, she really wanted to engage more seriously, and actually, so did the classmates. And the funniest part was, sometimes, after class, I'd actually be standing there, and I'd have four or five non-Christians who would actually be grilling me together. <laughs> How do you answer this? How do you answer that? What about this? How do you value that? Right? And honestly, it was intimidating at times, and especially with this one classmate who you could tell it wasn't just an intellectual thing. She was angry sometimes, right? There were times when the fact that I wasn't willing to back down really made her angry. But, but over time, you could see that just my willingness to keep engaging there was winsome. And, and ultimately, it climaxed at a, a meeting we had for a group project that we were in. And she actually asked me some, some questions about sexuality and about... Uh, it kind of tied in with abortion. It was, it was actually about whether or not... Uh, what you would do if somebody had an unsexed baby which is something I'd never heard of before. Right? I was like, what, what's an unsexed baby? And she said, well, actually, one in a thousand babies are born where their sex is just not clear. That something about their body makes it hard to discern what sex they are. And what would you do in that moment as a Christian? And I'm sitting here thinking, whoa, <laughs> like, I've never even heard of this thing before. What am I supposed to say to this? Right? And I said, well... You know, the honest truth is I don't know fully how I would respond to this. But one thing I know beyond a doubt is that that child is valuable as they are. And it might mean there's some tough decisions for them down the road when it comes to their sexuality and things like marriage and stuff. It might even mean they don't get to be married at some point in the future. I don't know. But I said, no matter what, I would support them in those decisions and I would, I would always cherish them as they are. I would not try and force them to be something other than what they are. And she stopped, and she went, wow. Well, that's actually the right answer. <laughs> okay, so you had an answer in mind. Got it. <laughs> she said, actually, most of the time, kids who are born on sex, when they reach puberty, then something begins to emerge that makes it clear which they are. And then you can make biological or physical changes that help kind of facilitate that. But she was like, just, just struck by the fact that I wouldn't respond by, I think she was fishing for kind of a gender bias. So I'm going, oh, well, it can be a little boy, sure. <laughs> right? Something like that. And the fact that I, I emphasized, this baby is precious no matter what. You could see just, just was not the response that she expected. And my classmates all came away just, wow, that was a helpful conversation. Thanks. And they actually would thank me. Thank you for sharing your opinion on that type of thing. Now, I don't know where they're at in their spiritual walk. The truth is, that was my last year at university, and many of those relationships just faded into nothing afterwards. But I look back on those conversations and go, I know that their perspective on Christians changed. Right? I know that my willingness to keep engaging, to respond with gentleness and respect, uh, to, to be firm about my values, but also to really 
keep on at the conversation made a difference. And I hope that that someday, maybe it already has, will, will lead to them being willing to actually engage more seriously with who is this God that would lead somebody to value people so unconditionally that he has no question about the value of this baby who's, who's often overlooked by the world. Right? I, I hope that's something that's stuck with them to this day. We, we often don't know how those stories end. But again, I think if we look at the historical record, what we find is that when Christianity lives that way, when we really live by our faith, when we respond to hostility with gentleness and respect, then that combined does win people over and ultimately, I think, can even win over cultures. So I, I think that's a very hopeful vision for how we should live in a world that often is hostile to our faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love, for your holiness, that you don't compromise on your standards, that you do declare evil to be evil, and you do call us to turn away from it, and you do demand that there will be some compensation for that. And yet in your Son, Jesus Christ, you earned us forgiveness. You brought us back into relationship with you, and you showed us that you who are holy are also gentle, gracious, even respectful of us, despite the fact that we do not merit that whatsoever. And so, Father, I pray that that would shape our lives, that we would go seeing your eyes upon us and knowing that we should live according to that grace that you have given us. And, Father, that as we do so, we trust you will use that to discredit those who are against your people and to earn deeper respect and transformation within the lives of the people around us. In Jesus' name, amen.